Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The inspiration for The Bygone was born from the grim effects of the recent oil boom in North Dakota. Beyond the environmental impact of fracking itself, the boom brought a wave of lawlessness to a region not suited to to respond to the flood of tens of thousands of predominantly male workers. Along with drugs and violence and crime, this wave brought a heightened market for sex trade, which disproportionately targets and exploits young Native American women. The film is called The Bygone, and we're joined today by the co-directors and the co-writers, screenwriters of the film. That would be Graham Phillips and Parker Phillips. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Hello, Mike. Glad to be here. To both of you. I'll ask both of you. I'll, Graham, I'll start with you. And Where did the specific story for The Bygone come from? Well, it was inspired by real-life events. Um, you know, in college, I... I was a U.S. history major, but my thesis studied on Native American. I focused on Native American affairs. My thesis was on indigenous resistance to colonialism, but sort of through a lens of sexual violence against Native women. You know, it's been an issue that's plagued this country for a really long time. So my brother actually sent me an article that New York Times had released. It was talking about how trafficking in Native communities started to skyrocket higher than you know their already high rates after the oil boom in North Dakota started up about five years ago because of fracking you know because as you said in the intro there's a huge um all male workforce that's going to these areas with not enough law enforcement and these are rural areas with more marginalized populations you know the trafficking skyrocketed and at the time i was studying the gold rush and it's me and to my brother you know it really struck us that it was pretty much the same exact phenomenon going on hundreds of years later you know it made us question well okay how far have we really come as a country if we're still dealing with this, this sort of core issue of um, how this country treats our land and how it treats our women, where that psychosis sort of comes from in the colonial mindset. And, you know, for a while, we'd really wanted to do a Western, but we want to do a modern Western, and ideally one that sort of turned a lot of those old stereotypes that have sort of become outdated on their head. And uh, this seemed like a perfect uh, real-life phenomenon for us to uh, try to bring a little bit of exposure to. It felt right, felt like the perfect blend of the Old West um, with a sort of modern issue. And, um, and so that's, that's really how we, we got started on it. And it mm. took us about two years to write the thing because um, we hadn't written a feature before. And so we were just sort of throwing paint at the wall for a while and eventually it came together. Um, Parker Phillips, uh, was it always uh, your intent to co-direct and co-write did you always sort of you've worked together before uh as mm-hmm. um and also co-produce I, i've left that out as well uh it was it always that way did you feel like uh, this was a you wanted to write something and maybe hand it off to somebody how, how did that sort of evolve you know we yeah we co-wrote and directed a short film which was more of a period western and then when we decided to do a feature we actually were trying to go around hollywood and read scripts we really didn't have any intention of writing our own screenplay. Being new to Hollywood, we didn't really realize how difficult it was to get your hands on good material. We started exploring, you know, doing a modern-day Western and started doing research into certain subject matters that we wanted and started honing in on doing a missing person story. We realized that, you know, perhaps if we were going to make this happen, we'd have to uh, 
fuck up and uh, write it ourselves. As far as co-directing, that's something my brother and I have always wanted to do. And uh, being older than my brother, I'm five years older, I just had to wait for him to graduate college so we could start our career together. Yeah, one of the things about The Bygone that's very impressive, it is a beautiful film to look at. Um, your cinematographer, David J. Merrick, did a wonderful job. And I've found that in talking with filmmakers over the years that that relationship that you have to your cinematographer is maybe if not the most important, certainly among the most important things you can do in terms of establishing a tone, a feel for a film. There's a lot of elements that go into uh, establishing a look in a film. David Merrick, tell us a little bit about your relationship and working with him and what you were, sort of the look of the film, what were you going for with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, David Merrick, uh, we met him on our short film. We, were, um, we had got sent a list of cinematographers from an agency that would possibly be interested in shooting it. And we saw David's reel and we fell in love with his work immediately. And we asked him to shoot the short film and we got really lucky because we were shooting our short in uh, Monterey, California. He jumped on board because he grew up there. So it was just kind of random happenstance that we got together. And then we were adamant that he was going to come and shoot our feature. And you're right. I mean, the director's relationship with the DP is definitely the most important thing, especially in an independent film, because when you get into overtime and you get into tough situations, uh, it's when you got a DP that's going to pick up the camera and keep shooting and make things happen for you. Uh, that meant the world to us. And he, you know, we went on like splinter units. We went to North Dakota together. If you look at the credits of the film, it says North Dakota unit. It's just me, my brother, and Myrick. And <laughs> we had a lot of little trips like that where we got a lot of those really great wides that you see in the film. Just because we hopped on a plane and we went to some of these remote locations with just a camera and a drone. And, um, yeah. You know, I think that really we really wanted to show we ended up shooting the film in Oklahoma, but we wanted to be able to show, you know, North Dakota and the oil fields in it as well. And so, you know, it's because the three of us did that. We were able to get that into our feature. Uh, the reason I bring it up so so soon in our conversation is because uh, that is such a defining characteristic, and particularly in a Western, whether it's a modern Western or a, a Western from a period piece, it, that that relationship of the land to the people is so important and being able to kind of pull that into as another character in the story is so important and i think it's very important to to the bygone in that regard uh that relationship and this is where i i think it's it's opportune time to talk about the relationship with the native american um community and how important it was for you to tell this story Graham, to tell a story of the exploitation of the even to this day, the lack of respect that uh, that the general apparatus of government has for the for the Native American is evident today. And uh, so I'm I'm glad to see this story told. Uh, Graham, obviously, it's a, you've, something you've been interested in for a long time. Well, why was that so important? Well, it wasn't something that I was always all that interested in just because we don't learn about that in our schooling system. You know, you, you there's a lot of erasure that goes on. Um, you know, the disappearance of the Native American is not necessarily something that's such a reality as it is like a, you know, a myth that's propagated. I always collected little Native American artifacts and whatnot. There, we grew up in Laguna Beach and there's this um, Native American art gallery and I was always really interested in that for some reason, even when I was like six or seven. Um, and I started collecting that kind of stuff in my room. And so I didn't really think all that much about it, but I was surrounded by all this 
native iconography and stuff growing up. And then, you know, flash forward, you know, 10 years or so, and I'm in college and I'm taking my first history of the American West course. I just started to realize, like, you know, Native American history is American history. It's just from a perspective that you you just haven't heard before. And I grew more and more interested in it and more and more uh, sort of frustrated that I hadn't heard any of this stuff before. You know, the more that you learn about Native American communities and, you know, their ideals, specifically their traditional ideals, the more you, um, you know, you sympathize with what they've gone through. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that these values that we sort of now espouse as pretty pretty progressive, you know, respect for, you know, the land, taking care of the environment, you know, making sure that there's a good safety net for everyone in your community and looking out for everyone um, and sort of this more extended idea of family and less rigid borders and the whole idea of nonviolence is actually, you know, it actually isn't all that progressive when you think about the fact that it's it was there in Native communities before this country was even founded. So it's, in some ways, it's like, you know, the most conservative of values as you can possibly have. So to me, that, that was sort of mind-blowing to think about. Yeah, so when you sort of understand where they've come from from that perspective, and you see all the violence and all of the issues that plague their communities today, you know, you think, okay, well, what happened? And obviously, colonization happened, and I was I learned more and more about it. And it's, you start talking to these different Native activists that are very passionate about it, and, you know, specifically when it deals with Native women, you know, that's been such a a serious, touchy subject for such a long time um, that when someone does get an outlet to speak about it, you know, it can be rather cathartic. I know that it was for um, a couple of our Native castmates, Takala Black Elk and Irene Bedard. Um, you know, they both had been affected in their families by violence against um, some of the women in their family. A couple of them had deal, they've dealt with um, disappearances that um, law enforcement weren't able to help out with because of resources and um, it not being a high priority. And so when they read the story, they were just like, you know, yes, yes, we want to tell this story, but we don't get a chance to all that often. I mean, Irene had testified before Congress when they were adding the tribal title to the Violence Against Women Act. But like, you know, it's different when you get to tell it in a story, you know, has a bit more narrative freedom. And so it's just really nice to get to work with them on it and get to get their insight on the script and make certain adjustments, because obviously... You know, we can do as much research as we possibly can, but at the end of the day, if you don't talk to the people that are affected, you're going to end up with something half-baked and, you know, sort of more voyeuristic in its narrative. Right. And and all the things you're describing, these are things that are not ancient history. They're not, they're, they're history. They're happening now. I mean, the, the Native American communities in this country, there are some exceptions now that gambling and casinos have come into play where the economic opportunity is slightly better for for a relatively stratified part of, of the uh, Native American community. But by and large, most Native Americans are living in abject poverty with virtually no educational opportunities or economic opportunities to speak of. They're being decimated by disease and alcoholism and all the kinds of things that we have been talking about for decades and decades as far as those issues facing those communities. And it's so heartening to see their story told in, in a story, in a, in, a, in a narrative form where people, rightly or wrongly, tend to relate better to if they see it in a, in, in a character that they can uh, associate to. I'm really happy with the the arc of the story in the film. We haven't talked an awful lot about that. Maybe this is a chance to 
uh, to talk about just what the arc of this story is, um, but um, and the loss of land. There are a number of, of issues that are dealt with in the film. The loss of the farm, uh, so the declining economy in the country, economic uh, lack of economic opportunity, faced with hard choices. These are things that are in the film that I think are important, and I'm seeing more narrative films about these issues, and in, in, including issues regarding the Native American community. So it's heartening to see, but certainly it's heartening to see in the bygone. Well, Part- thank you. You know, one of the things that we we wanted to tackle a little bit, um, speaking to that, that sort of loss of loss of land, the loss of, you know, a sort of ancient identity. You know, we really, one of the things that fascinated us was this idea that the cowboy and the Indian now, their fates are sort of sealed. Like these two, what's been posited as these ancient rivals, they are on the same side. And honestly, when you look at history, they always sort of were on the same side. It was modernity that really was pushing both out. And that's sort of where we are right now, where most of the film, like even when you look at the shots of Summer Ranch, in the background, there's these windmills everywhere, farming energy. Obviously, it's on the different side of, uh, you know, seeing all the the flaring towers and all the, you know, the fracking rigs and everything scattered around the landscape. But even, you know, even clean energy is totally changing this landscape, literally and, you know, metaphorically. And so there's this, this idea that, this idea of encroachment and feeling powerless to that was something that we wanted to explore. But also I want to be sort of clear about what our intents were. While there is, you know, a lot of victimization that goes on in Indian country, we didn't want this to just be a story that, shows that victimization, you know, there's there's honestly enough of that. What is important is to show there are heroes in Indian country and that right. they've been fighting for centuries and they're still fighting today. And that this is not a case of other people coming in to help them. And we all these major shifts that have come about, that's sort of what my thesis is all about, these major shifts where progress was made, cultural identities were reaffirmed and certain laws got passed that protect tribal sovereignty. All of those uh, bits of headway, you know, it started at a grassroots level in Native communities. So they've they've really been helping themselves more than having other people come in and sort of fix things for them, which has sort of been a common misconception. So when we had on the surface this story about this, this white cowboy who wants to go save the day um, because he's fallen for this Native American girl, we were obviously very careful to make sure that she was asserting her own agency and that, you know, in some ways without giving too much away, yeah. you know, she becomes a hero in her own right. So that was one of the things that we really focused on. Yeah. No, I, I thank you. And thank you for, for clarifying all of that, because I think that is important. Absolutely. And I think it's an important part of the film. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here in the last minute or two that we have together. Um, uh, Graham Phillips, uh, is it difficult to take direction from uh, from your brother, Parker? Are you do you work through that on the set or how is that? <laughs> how is that to have your brother uh, directing you at times? Um, only because I know he's right. And so if I do, you know, if I'm doing something and I think that, you know, he's right and I had the wrong idea for a moment, I'm a little ticked off more at myself, but I didn't see it first. But, uh, but pretty much I just let, we let all that go. You know, it's like, especially when you're, you know, you work on a film with, you know, you don't have all the money in the world and you only have a couple dozen days to shoot it. You just whatever makes it go more quickly. So um, yeah. I actually felt like we had a pretty a pretty smooth, very efficient way of communicating. He, you know, well, he didn't have to fluff me up at all. He just came in and was like, you got to do it this way, and we'd yeah. be done with the conversation in about two seconds. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it. How many shooting days did you guys get for this? We had 25. 
that's 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 good. That's not I. You know, it's in an independent film production. Twenty five seems about the 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 average, if you will. I've recently had somebody come in uh, who said they had fourteen, and then I yeah, think, you know, it, it all depends on the, the problem was uh, so many different locations. Yeah, when you're dealing with horses and. When the thing takes place all over the place, it's just to become a day suck when you got to change locations in the middle of a day, and then oh, yeah, um, you know to go and you know shoot in an abandoned gold mine that we pretty much had to. We didn't make from scratch because we went and we filmed in this place, Alabaster Caverns. But uh, you know, it's just the more bizarre locations you have, it's just hard to rig it with electricity and the lighting. Oh yeah, the whole thing. And, yeah, you know how that works. Yeah, and you're right. You're 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 indoors. You're at the ranch. You're you're at the brothel. You're uh, at the bar, you're uh, on on the road. You're in the you're right in the in the gold mine. All these kind of things. That's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of stuff. And the film looks it. I mean, it looks like you spent more money than you probably did on it. And I think that's uh, one of the attractions of westerns is there's a there's already there's kind of a built-in expectation and a look of of, of westerns. It helps. I think a filmmaker, especially uh, one without a lot of money, uh, and but you you guys got you got a lot out of what you. Uh, you know, out, out of your uh, budget, I'm sure. But, um, well, congratulations on the film. The, and I want to let people know how they can find out more about uh, The Bygone. Uh, there's philipspictures.com. Uh, that's your name, F-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, pictures.com to find out more about it. Is there a better place for people to find out about The Bygone than that? Uh, you can watch the trailer there, and then um, if you go into iTunes, Amazon Prime, you just type in the bygone, you can pre-order it, and it comes out November 12th. Yeah, it's coming out r- real soon, November 12th, so be looking for it. My congratulations to both of you on the work here, and I hope you continue to collaborate. You guys have got a good thing going, and um, all the best. All the best to you. We've been speaking with Graham Phillips and Parker Phillips, the co directors, the co-writers, co-producers, as well as Graham was wearing, literally wearing the hat as one of the lead actors in the film. And uh, so I want to thank you both for being here on Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.